Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees and anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, I'm one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and I'm one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. Excuse me for my voice this week, I've come down with a cold but I wanted to get this episode out for you all. So we're going to be continuing an episode we actually started last week, so if you haven't heard last week's episode, it's worth going back to that to have a listen to that first. Last week, Reb and I were joined by Dr. Catherine Chadwick, the Vice President of Training and Assessment at the Royal College of Paediatrics, and by Dr. Emma Dyer, the Chair of the Trainees Committee at the Royal College of Paediatrics. And together we discussed the introduction of the Progress Plus curriculum. So, let's get started. Is in terms of when we change over to it, um, so for someone like myself as an ST2, my understanding is that the changeover will just be automatic. I will be moving on to Progress Plus. But is there, is there going to be a grey area where the transition doesn't happen or will it, is it going to happen by default for everyone now? So for almost everyone, it will be by default, as you say. Um, the only group that it may not be default for are those senior trainees who are expecting to CCT before September 2024. So as long as they're CCTing by that date, they have a choice and they can choose to stay on the current Progress curriculum or they can transfer to Progress Plus. In reality, it will make very little difference because, as we said, for specialty training, um things aren't really changing that much they'll already be on their specialty uh, curricula um, and so it shouldn't really make much difference but given that they've got such a short amount of time in their training left they can choose to not transition if they want to having said that everyone must be on progress plus by um, after september 2024 so if there's a possibility that they won't cct before that then they'll need to transition yeah i guess just to add to that um everybody as apart from the people that will CCT in the next year will go on to Progress Plus but some people will be on a seven-year pathway from the outset and some people will still be on an eight-year pathway until they CCT. Um, so so you, Reb, will be on a seven-year pathway. Uh, so anyone that's currently in ST1 to 3 will, will seamlessly transition to core training and go through on a seven-year pathway. Um, anyone that is already in level three or is due to start level three after this summer will be on Progress Plus, but will be on an eight-year pathway. So they'll complete full eight years in training, in indicative uh, training time. And then those in the middle, so those that have started but haven't yet finished level two, will have the choice about whether they um, stay in core and then they would have, uh, they'd be on an eight-year pathway or whether they go straight to specialty, in which case they would be on a seven-year pathway. Um, and I hope most people have made that decision now um, and discussed it with their trainers. But whether you're ultimately finished an eight-year pathway or you do a seven-year pathway you'll still be on the progress plus curriculum if that makes sense yeah that completely I, I think I hadn't separated time versus 
curriculum as two two almost separate things so that yeah makes complete sense emma if that's um a lot to get your head around um because i know that my mind melts a bit when i think about it there is a really nice diagram on the college website as well um which kind of maps out those pathways and kind of where you are and whether you'll be on that seven or eight year kind of pathway um and it's also probably just worth saying that we keep talking about seven years and eight years um, and that's the, like Catherine said, the indicative length. Um, and as we know, progress and it will be also for progress plus is a capability based training. So for some people, they may do it in a shorter time than seven or eight years. And for some people, they may do it in a longer time. Um, and that's fine. It's an indicative length. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, the average. Um, but actually, in reality, we all know that People might take time out of training. They might do bits and pieces here and there. Some people will meet capabilities quicker. Some people will bring capabilities with them from, you know, experiences and training they've had prior to starting pediatric training. um, And so be able to meet those capabilities quicker. Um, And so although that is the indicative time is a capability based training. So that will be flexible and will depend completely on individual circumstances. You've actually gone really nicely into um, what I was about to actually um, ask you is that um, does, but I think you've covered a lot of it, but if we could go into a little bit more um, detail about it is, so is there a, is there a minimum time we have to complete training in? Um, Or is it, like you say, quite um, quite flexible? If you're meeting your competencies, do you want me? Shall I take that? Um, so, I, uh, capability-based training is—I'm really passionate about really embedding this properly, and I think Progress Plus is our opportunity to continue that conversation. I think currently, even trainers that talk about capability-based progression can get a bit bogged down in time, uh, and. And to some extent, that's that's understandable because any training programme has to fit in with the constraints of the posts available and the training year and the calendar and the ARCP calendar. So I understand there are some time constraints, but um, the, the programme has been set as an indicative seven-year programme with four years at core and three years at specialty level. And that is what has been agreed by the college and by the GMC as a reasonable length of time that should take to train uh, sort of the average person coming in without necessarily any paediatric experience or jobs previously. Um, As Emma said, there will be people that choose to go through um, slower because they take out-of-programme experiences, and that's something we want to really encourage to give flexibility and diversity to training. Um, There will be people that struggle a bit at some of the gateways and might need a bit of extra time for exams or other things and and the processes exist for that through ARCP outcomes. Um, But there will be a lot of people that come in with other experiences um, that mean that they can achieve their capabilities quicker uh, and go through those gateways quicker. Um, And we really need to be embedding that within our training. It's quite difficult to do when you've got supervision that that only looks at six-month blocks, 
which is why alongside capability-based progression, we're really trying to encourage longitudinal supervision. So you have one educational supervisor that looks after you and that is your person for the whole of a level, so the whole of core training, um, and can take an overview of your capability progression through the curriculum. Because actually somebody might progress really well in, say, teaching or research in one six months of the job, but the next six months, they might be concentrating on some other bit of the curriculum. And I think being able to look at your whole level training with an, an overview that helps you develop every bit of the curriculum rather than ticking every box of the curriculum every six months to keep your supervisor happy in that six months. I think that will really play into capability-based progression. It also depends on your supervisor and the trainees having really good dialogue with the schools and the TPDs so that people know when they're likely to want to pass through gates and be ready to move up to the next level because that helps with post-planning and and helping the, the programmes run. So I think it's going to be involve multiple conversations and multiple inputs, but hopefully with the end game of having much more flexible and personalised training and allowing people to progress at a rate that's right for them and it's also something about life isn't it so you know training isn't isn't a thing on its own it's integrated in your lives and sometimes your lives allow you to to achieve your training really quickly and gallop through things and do loads of stuff and maybe progress a bit quicker and sometimes other things happen and and actually you just slow down a bit with your training because life gets in the way and and it's it's not your top top priority for that six months or that year and having a longitudinal supervisor and a capability-based progression system allows training to, to to meld much easier with with life and the pace of life um i i can only um i guess speak from my experience with wales but i know that um for us here in wales they've introduced uh having one supervisor for your level so i've currently had the same educational supervisor for the last two years and it's been really beneficial so i can see why it's something that's wanting to be encouraged because as you said my educational supervisor has seen me at the start of training and sees me at this point and has you know has that like you say overview so it's nice to know that that's being encouraged and it's it's really it's really nice as a supervisor as well so in our region we've introduced it we're trying to introduce it on a rolling basis so we've introduced it for the st1s as they come in uh, for the last couple of years so i've been a supervisor um, for a trainee for the last two years and it's it's a really rewarding relationship actually much more so than than six month fights um and obviously there'll be you know there'll be situations where there are personality issues and, and people might want to change their supervisor and the mechanisms have to exist for that but actually it's I think it's a it's the way forward um sorry if this is uh we're we're just reiterating but I just I know some of our listeners because we have a lot of people that are LTFT in um peds um so just for clarity I think you've gone through it all but with this being now more focused on um, competencies, if someone is less than full time and is 80%, I, I use 80% as the example because it's one of the more common uh, less than full time um, amounts that we have, is will training time definitely be affected for them? Or is it a case, again, it's still just being encouraged that using the competency basis, um, that it's 
you might extend your um, indicative time by 20%, but it shouldn't necessarily affect their training time by being less than full time. So your training time, the seven years yeah. is an indicative whole time equivalent to seven years. So for somebody that's working 80%, they would get four years plus 20%. I can't do the maths off the top of my head. So their time in core is is four years whole time equivalent. So it will be, whatever the maths is, four and a half years for the sake of argument. Um, and they might achieve their capabilities a bit before that. But then so might a full-time trainee achieve their capabilities a bit before that. Um, we are going to put some uh, guidance on the website because I, I realise at the moment there isn't any guidance about capability progression on the website. Um, my view is that uh, people should capability progress when they reach a gateway. And so I don't think it does anyone any favours to say you can finish ST1 in 12 months at 80% and then ST2 in 12 months at 80%. Even if your progress is good, you're effectively shaving time off training as to every year that that trainee might actually come to need at some stage. So it may be that they struggle a bit with exams or it may be that the, the you know, they struggle in some other way and they might need that time in training. So actually, I think you, you progress chronologically through your ST levels at a whole time equivalent rate and you capability progress when you've met the capabilities. And that's exactly the same whether you're less than full time or you're full time. So we really sense? need to be having these dialogues with our supervisors and just having that overview of where yeah. we're at in order to be, well, as we're approaching these yes. gateways, having those discussions pre-ARCPs and yeah. things to see where we're at. Exactly. Makes yeah. sense. I was just looking through some of the other questions we have um, from trainees and supervisors, and actually you've covered quite um, a lot of them. I think there's um, just, I think my final couple of thoughts is at the moment, um, well, I say at the moment, uh, for progress, you had to have, before becoming a reg, you'd have your clinical exams. But now that we've, the time base for completing your exams has moved, how, uh, and there's this step up kind of greyish zone in the core um, level. Uh, when, how are people going to be able to sh display that they're ready for these middle grade rotors? Are there any assessments that we'll be encouraged to be doing that means that we can display our readiness for all of this? Yeah, so um, I think there's a difference between being supported at middle grade and being independently on the middle grade rotor. So I would expect all trainees during certainly during the beginning of ST3 and maybe during ST2, to be given opportunities to hold the bleep, do ward drowns, um, act in a middle grade capacity with, with their consultant very near them um, without doing it necessarily any extra assessments or, or tick boxes or anything to do that. But in order to say whether you're ready, give you and your trainers confidence that you're ready to be independently on the middle grade rotor so with your consultant remote maybe at home um, there's a couple of steps that we're putting in so there's a readiness for middle grade form 
that is on the website already, it was on Kaizen already, that uh, is completed with your clinical supervisor and signed off with your educational supervisor that says, actually, um, you're ready to do it. Uh, you've got all your DOPS. You've got your NLS, APLS or equivalent. Uh, you've got your level three safeguarding uh, and you're confident to do it. Um, there's a couple of assessments. So there's a thing called the ECAT which is also live on Kaizen at the moment. Lots of people have done it. I don't know if either of you have already done one. Um, it's like an ACAT. So it looks at a clinical encounter like a ward round or managing the take uh, or an admission to the neonatal unit, for instance, or for, for some trainees, maybe a, a clinic that they're doing. And it looks at... The whole of that event, so like an ACAT does, it gives you feedback on how you manage your time, how you manage your team, your clinical input, your safe prescribing, your communication, um, and then gives you feedback. But it also has a, a, an entrustable element to it. So at the end, it will say, a bit like a DOPS, it will say, this trainee is now ready to do this independently with remote supervision. So at the moment, that's being done. It's part. It's an optional assessment as part of the current assessment um, program. We're we're waiting for the GMC to decide whether we can have that as a mandatory part of the assessment table, uh, or whether it will remain optional. Um, but either way, it will be an assessment that we're really encouraging trainees to do, and that will form part of that readiness for middle grade assessment. So basically, you'll do your ECATS. You'll have done all your DOPS your clinical supervisor and colleagues will think you're ready to do it you'll think you're ready to do it and that's an important part of the readiness for middle grade form is, is the trainees view and then you're ready to go and that's signed off by your educational supervisor and then you're ready to be independent on the middle grade rotor and there's also a part on that form for your own development needs so even if you're ready to go onto the middle grade rotor you may well feel you've got some development and, and so there's a bit on the form to allow you to do that so that's the process that we'll be following. I um, I don't know if I should admit to this, but I'd seen the ECAT on Kazan and um, didn't know what it was and have uh, kind of pretends it does not exist. So hearing you explain it makes it far less daunting. So thank you. And I guess I'm only at ST2, so it's not something I'm thinking about at the moment, but that'll be really useful for our um, colleagues that are higher up the ladder to know what that is because um, it's yeah it's had it's had good feedback in yeah. the pilot so I'd encourage you <laughs> to do one um, and I think it will also have really good uh, place in especially level training as well and um, so yeah. watch this space for how it develops in the future because I think doing clinics and and running ward round uh, in preparation to be a consultant would be a really useful uh, place to use the eCash as well yeah it's, it sounds like things that you don't always think about doing assessments for and that we can't you kind of naturally do but having something that cements that to give you that confidence that someone said yeah I think you're ready to do this on your own is gives you that extra boost Emma yeah I just wanted to add I think Reb you talked about how we had this old model of um, you do your clinical exam and then that's you know you're ready to be a registrar um, and I think that doesn't really work. I mean, if you think about doing your clinical exam, you know, some people do their clinical exam in ST2, maybe right at the beginning of ST2. It doesn't necessarily mean they're ready to kind of step up to middle grade. And 
equivalently some people who you know are excellent on the shop floor really good clinicians but just have a block at the exam have a bad day don't get on with exams or whatever Um, and I think actually it makes so much more sense for somebody who's working with you day in day out who sees how you work who can see how you're kind of coping in that environment how you are leading your team they have a much better idea of whether you are ready to step up to that middle grade and as do you as the trainee as well so I think moving this way (coughs) makes a lot more sense I mean there's still a place for exams but the actual when you're ready to make that transition um, probably is irrelevant kind of whether you've got your clinical exam or not it's much more about how you are kind of on the shop floor on a day-to-day basis in your job yeah, I know I'm thinking about sitting my clinical in the next six months and I'm like, I don't think I'd be ready for middle grade rotors, even with my clinical. Um, Catherine, you mentioned this about um, assessment tables and trying to get um, these ECAT, um, like at seeing if the GMC will let us add it to the assessment table. Are there changes happening with the assessment table? And are we, are we getting a new one? Yes, there will be a new one. Um, if nothing else, it will be d- d- divided into core and specialty. So we need to divide it into two levels. Um, it's very similar to the current assessment table that we have got used to over the last couple of years under COVID. So there's really quite a, a low number of mandatory assessments. So uh, there will be the DOPS, there will be safeguarding CBDs, there will be some docs so your written communication um uh but actually the number of assessments we're keeping deliberately low as a minimum and but hoping that you will then uh, evidence your progress through the curriculum in lots and lots of other ways so the the the, um, the portfolio can be used really creatively to evidence your progress through the curriculum and it's not just about those mandatory assessments it's also about lots of reflection, lots of clinical questions, lots of self-directed learning, um, learning from formal training sessions, all of those things, so that your curriculums, uh, your sorry, your portfolio is more diverse and not just lots of tick boxy mandatory assessments. So the, the assessment table will be published, but we're just um, going through those last steps with the GMC to get all the sort of sign off of all the mandatory bits and pieces. Won't look very different. People always forget about development logs on the portfolio um, where you can put literally anything and it's all about kind of we're adult learners, right? So yes, we need to have the assessments and things that are signed off by people more senior to us, but ultimately there's so much stuff that we learn all the time where someone's not going to be able to sign off and say, oh yeah, they learned this. Um, And you can chuck pretty much anything in a development log and reflect on what you've learned from it and how that links to the curriculum um, and I think a lot of people forget that that's on there and you can like put a lot of stuff on there without needing to wait for your consultant to sign your form off. Yeah, definitely guilty of that one. Um, sorry, Asim, I've hogged all of the chat. I think the only the last thing I wanted to ask, and it, it might be a bit more of a tricky one because I know um, it, things are different in Wales to England. Um, with transitions, is it... Um, is it is this going to have an impact on pay progression for people are you aware of anything because with i know in wales we go off nodal points so with every st you go up a nodal point um and but england you've got the brackets of like that are almost between the levels 
So will it affect people's pay progression when we transition over? Yes. So we have thought uh, really hard about this. Um, Progress Plus will definitely not disadvantage anyone's pay progression. We thought it would be a really simple thing to sort out. Actually, it turns out it's not so simple. So, yes, you're right. The, um, there is a nodal pay progression point at ST6, and that is across all specialties, and it's sort of independent what your job description is. Every specialty um, does slightly different things at ST6, but every specialty has ST6 as their nodal uh, pay progression. So for people that are progressing chronologically, so for, for you, Reb, and for people that are in, in will be in core training, they will hit ST6 at the same point they always expected to hit ST6 and will get their pay progression point. Uh, what we really wanted to do was to put everybody on new S, new Progress Plus ST nomenclature from the outset. So we wanted everybody that was going into specialty training to be ST5, even if that meant they were going from a year ST5 under Progress to ST5 under Progress Plus. But that would have meant that they missed out on their pay progression points or would have had to wait another year for their pay progression point, and we absolutely don't want that to happen. So um, it's a slightly complicated fix. Basically, everybody will progress chronologically through the ST numbers. So somebody who is ST5 now who will go into specialty level under Progress Plus, will go into ST6, but in brackets after it, it will say Specialty 5 or S5 to indicate that they are Specialty Training Year 5. And, and that's the same for all the points that would be affected by the pay progression point. And eventually that slightly clunky nomenclature will work its way through the system and everybody will just be called ST1 to 7. Um, it sounds a bit more complicated when I'm just describing it. Uh, there is information on the website. Um, the BMA have been informed of the solution that we've come to. There is going to be a portfolio fix so that you should be labelled what you should be labelled on the portfolio um, and you should get your pay progression. So uh, that's the solution. So quite a, a complicated question, but the simple answer is nobody should get affected by their pay progression. Absolutely. Um, but and it probably might look a bit clunky yeah. initially. Yeah, everyone's probably even more confused after that explanation, but it, it will work, <laughs> I promise. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think I've worked my way through, I think I've spoken your, your guys' ears off. So um, Asim, I don't know if... Um, you want to go into a bit of the more contentious issues surrounding uh, Progress Plus? Yeah, so like Reb says, I get to deal with some of the more contentious issues that have been brought up by the trainees and um, and and some of the supervisors. Uh, I've I'm going to dilute the language slightly and make it perhaps a little less <laughs> a little less effervescent than it was in the in the versions of the questions I got. Um, so let's start with 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 the trainee questions because of course losing a year of training is going to impact on the number of trainees there are at any given point. And I think the two points that have been highlighted 
to to us through the, through our questions to the to the trainees was you know a grid application time and and at CCT time for the next couple of years there's an extra cohort of trainees who can effectively like jump a year ahead or maybe be a, a year behind and and, and it's I think it's what what's been referred to. Um, I don't know whether this is the official term yet, but it's been referred to constantly by the by the Royal College as the bulge. So I'm just going to call it that. Um, so a lot of the questions are, you know, uh, I'm going to get hit by the bulge when I hit uh, when I apply for grid training. What what measures have the Royal College put in place to try and help me through this? So you're right, Asim, is that there will be slightly increased competition. But actually, I don't think that the bulge is going to be as kind of big as everyone was worrying about. And actually, it's probably going to be spread over a couple of years. Um, And that's for a few reasons, partly because, as Catherine explained earlier, those that are currently in ST4 are going to, well, already have had this choice. Some will choose to stay in core paediatrics for another year and some will choose to go into specialty. So already that kind of evens out those people that may have been able to apply a year early to grid or subspecialty, um, as we're supposed to call it now. Um, and then the other thing to say is I get asked a lot, or oh, why can't the college just make more jobs in the subspecialties? Um, and it's important to note that the college don't actually have any um, say over the number of train, like the training number of paediatric trainees that they have. That's all dictated by, well, in England, what was HEE and the equivalents in the other nations. Um, but what they have done is worked with the CSACs and all the different subspecialties and also mapped and had a look at kind of consultant jobs. Because the other thing is there's no point giving lots of trainees jobs in subspecialties is when, when they CCT, there isn't a job for them. So it needs to be kind of mapped to the workforce planning as well. But they've looked at that and they've repurposed some of the training numbers that they already had to um, make a few extra subspecialty jobs this year. So we did have slightly increased um, applications for subspecialties this year, but we also had increased jobs as well. So that's mitigated some of that. Um, It probably won't mitigate all of it, and there probably will be a bit of increased competition for a couple of years, um, but I don't think it's going to be as big a problem as people were worrying about with those kind of mitigating factors. Yeah, and I think when it comes to CCT, I think that bulge will be even more diluted because a couple of years on, there'll be a lot more people that have gone out of programme or um, gone on statutory leave or, or whatever. So I think the bulge will be flattened. But also, there are loads of jobs out there. I, I haven't come across any area that is saying we've got too many people applying for consultant posts. So if there are a few more people CCTing, especially with the trend towards um, less than full-time working, uh, I think that will continue into consultant level and I think there'll be jobs for people. So, um, yeah, I don't think there will be such a big problem at CCT. Uh, I think it's also important, uh, building on what Emma said, to say that the college uh, are doing a lot of work around workforce planning and it is important that we match subspecialty training posts to regions and subspecialties that really need the consultant posts. Um, it, it's disingenuous to tell trainees that you can train for any subspecialty you want in any region you want and there would be a job for you in that subspecialty in that region. In some of the smaller subspecialties, there may not and it's it's not fair to um, raise expectations of 
of trainees for their future career that that are unrealistic. And on the flip side of that, there are there are some subspecialties that are really uh, crying out for consultants and that that need to recruit more trainees. So, you know, it's trying to it's trying to make that keeping it flexible and attractive for trainees, but realistic for the future and for the needs of the children, and young people in the in the various regions. Uh, so, so if I've got this right, basically, there will be a bulge. It's not as bad as we initially thought it was going to be but there's not really any getting around the fact that competition will increase however the college is doing what it can to to increase capacity where it can where it's appropriate is that a fair summary yeah i think that's a fair summary i think it's also really important to remember that 70 percent of trainees will go into general paediatrics. That's the that's the biggest role at the end of training. Um, and I know people get their sights fixed on subspecialty training, um, but it's still only about 30% of trainees that will go down the subspecialty route. It has to be mapped to the jobs available at the end and the needs of the population. And there's always been competition for some of those um, subspecialty posts. But yes, you're right. Uh, there's no getting away from there will be a bit more competition in some subspecialties. As we're on the topic of subspecialties, I might as well bring up the supervisor's question. So, so um, you know, with the swap to Progress Plus and perhaps a little less focus on six month and year long blocks in a couple of specialties we've already mentioned, there have been some questions from this, from those subspecialties. So I'll, I'll just get to the crux of it, which is like community and neonatal um, educational supervisors have been in contact with me and saying, you know what we had we we we've gotten used to having six month blocks in in community or eighteen months of neonates to get people interested in these fields to begin with, um, and also you know we need the trainees here, um, you know to to help fill our our rotors and I, you know there, there's no getting around that they need to they have rotors that need filling and and by reducing the amount of time that trainees spend in those specialties it becomes a it, there's an argument that perhaps there aren't there isn't as much exposure so they'd be less tempted to join them or the the subspecialties will then struggle to you know fill their rotors and have a, a safe effective service for for the um, local population so i suppose the, the the question from them is why us i suppose is what it comes down to yeah, I, I think um, the first thing to say is it's really important to separate training imperatives and service imperatives. And I know that in the real world, they go hand in hand, but we can't make decisions that are not good for training just to fill service gaps. Um, I think neonates and community both have very valid points, but they're quite different. So if I take them separately so I think neonates there actually has never been much trouble interesting trainees in neonates it's a really popular subspecialty it's a really popular spin Um, a lot of trainees enjoy spending lots of time in neonates and trainees will still do neonatal posts then we're not taking trainees away from neonatal posts um, wholesale Um, trainees in core training will still need to gain their neonatal capabilities and they will still need to be able to work as ST4 middle grade 
uh, in, for instance, the DGH, which has a, a neonatal unit attached to it. Um, although I think trainees working at that level on middle grade rotors need more support now than they maybe did five or ten years ago, and that's a trend that's continuing and not so much to do with Progress or Progress Plus, but just a, the way that neonatal care is, is developing. So trainees will still need to spend some time on neonatal capabilities in core training. But we've been saying for quite a long time that it's really important to have sustainable neonatal rotors with multi-professional workforce, including ACPs. Um, and you know we all know neonates has led the way with neonatal nurse practitioners um, as part of their workforce. And and actually having that diverse, robust workforce is much better for our services and our babies and our units. And then we can concentrate on, on giving trainees what they need for their development. There is no point giving somebody 18 months of neonatal training during core training if actually they're then going to go and be a, a paediatric neurologist or a rheumatologist. Um, that, is, that is pure service um, provision um, for community I think they can be a little bit hidden away from the main services and I think it is really important to give trainees opportunities to see community paediatrics for community paediatrics to infuse trainees about the specialty and to encourage trainees into it and again we're not taking trainees wholesale out of community paediatrics what we're what we're doing is saying you don't have to spend a standard six-month placement in community as a registrar but you do have to have community capabilities and exposure to community paediatrics during core training so yes trainees may provide less service in community paediatrics but we would hope that trainees still spend more time in community paediatrics and exposed to it and I would, I would throw some of that gauntlet back at my community paediatric colleagues and say, it's a great specialty. So infuse the trainees and, and um, you know, go on a bit of an offensive and make their time in community paediatrics during call really interesting. Um, and, and then you'll hopefully see trainees coming back and wanting to do it as a subspecialty. I guess the other thing to say is they may not spend six months in community paediatrics as a block, but some trainees may want to spend more time in core in, in community paediatrics or spend time during general paediatrics, specialty level training in community paediatrics. And that's the flexibility that Progress Plus um, offers. Fab. Thank you, Catherine. Um, Emma, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? you don't you don't have no i think Catherine's covered it really well actually and yeah i think it is really important to think about when we're making these kind of decisions for training is this providing good training or are we just filling root gaps um and i know we kind of do need to provide service as well but if it's taking away from training then that may not be the right decision so you know i think Catherine's kind of covered it really well and i don't really have anything extra to say um, so the so another thing that's come up um, from trainees that um, that they wanted to know a bit more about is that there's been um, chat on the rumor mill that 
there'll be options now to swap between subspecialties. So if you're in, in one subspecialty and there's a related subspecialty, you might be able to change from one to the other. Is that right? So sort of, but not quite, I think would be hmm. a fair way of answering that. Uh, so yeah, under Progress Plus, there will be a possibility that trainees could switch between subspecialties um, and have relevant evidence that they've kind of collected in the first subspecialty count towards the subspecialty they're switching into. This is likely to only be relevant to a very few number of people um, and it probably will be limited into the first year of subspecialty because after that you're becoming kind of too specialised, if that makes sense. So as an example, maybe to make it a bit clearer, say that you were appointed um, and you got a place doing community child health um, and you started down that road and you were in your programme but then decided that maybe neurodisability was actually what you wanted to do. So you could then apply to subspecialty for neurodisability. So you'd have to go through the same application everyone else did. And if you were then successful and you were appointed, you could then carry across some of the competencies and evidence from your time and community where there was overlap in the capabilities. So it basically only works if there's overlap in the curriculum. So it wouldn't work for all subspecialties. You could still reapply, but you'd have to kind of start again. Um, but for some subspecialties where there is overlap in the curriculum, you may be able to count that evidence um, towards your other subspecialty that you decide to move into. So in reality, I think that will affect only a few trainees because most trainees aren't going to be wanting to move around once they've got their subspecialty job. They're normally like, great, this is what I'm doing. Um, but for some people where they decide actually maybe it wasn't quite the right one, um, there may be that option. Fab, thank you. And was there anything you wanted to add to that, Catherine? So I suppose um, it's more relevant onto Progress Plus because people will be going into subspecialties a little bit earlier in their career with a little bit more less experience of, of middle grade working and maybe a little bit less experience of the subspecialty they're going into and this coming autumn will be the first recruitment round where what Emma's outlined is a possibility so I agree I think it will only affect a small number of uh, trainees but the important thing I think would be to talk to CSACs if if you're considering that to talk to CSACs early on, they're always happy to give advice about whether you could reapply and the, the level of shared capabilities that you might be able to demonstrate. Amazing. So thank you. I think that was all of the questions that we've had from the trainees and supervisors about Progress Plus. Well done to both of you for, <laughs> for managing to get through them all. I'm sorry we've had to occupy so much of your time. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you to both of you. So um, thank you very much, Catherine and Emma, for coming to join us. Thanks for having us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And I just wanted to say thank you to both Catherine Chadwick and to Emma Dyer for joining us for this episode and to Reb Jones for giving me a hand while having a chat with them. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.